Don't you love an extra $100 in your pocket? Have a TurboTax expert file your taxes for you by March 31st to get $100 back instantly. Because no matter what moves you made last year, TurboTax makes them count. That means getting $100 back and 100% accurate taxes only from Intuit TurboTax. Must file by 331. Credit only applicable to federal filing fees with TurboTax full service. Offer can be modified or terminated at any time. You're listening to the Archaeology Podcast Network. Hey everybody, Chris Webster here. This is a recording from my KNVC 95.1 FM Carson Community Media radio show. If you want to listen live every Friday, well, most Fridays, then you can listen at 12 p.m. Pacific time at knvc.org forward slash listen dash live. Throughout this show, I will mention a call-in phone number. Obviously, don't call in, but use the other contact information, and you can send me any questions, and I will respond. All right, here we go, and on to the show. You're listening to The Archaeology Show with Chris Webster on KNVC 95.1 FM, Carson Community Media in Carson City, Nevada, and online at knvc.org forward slash listen dash live. Welcome to the show. Hello, listeners and fans of archaeology. I'm your host for the next hour, Chris Webster, and I'm a contract archaeologist in a field we call cultural resources management. I also run the Archaeology Podcast Network, and we have lots of shows about archaeology, including the recordings of this show. So if you happen to miss one one week, you can find them all at www.archpodnet.com. Today I'll be talking with Michelle Cross, a California cultural resources management archaeologist, and we'll get Michelle on in just a second. While you're listening, remember that this is first and foremost a call-in show, and you've got two great archaeologists on the line, so ask us any questions. Call in at 775-515-4141. That's 775-515-4141. You can also tweet your questions to at Archaeowebby, A-R-C-H-E-O-W-E-B-B-Y, or at ArcPodNet, A-R-C-H-P-O-D-N-E-T. I'll be sort of monitoring those, and hopefully I'll see them. So the best bet is to just call in. Um, so again, call in with your questions about archaeology, history, archaeology on TV, questions about finding things on your property, anything. Uh, we don't have all the answers, but uh, we'll do our best to get you the right direction. So, all right, one more time, 775-515-4141. All right, well, I am going to bring Michelle on right now. Michelle, welcome to the show. Hello, how are you doing? Hey, pretty good, pretty good. So, is this uh, is this your first interview on the radio? Oh my gosh, yes it is. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's great. Um, I don't mess it up. <laughs> you're fine. You're fine. I know it's always interesting for me because I'm used to podcasting, and I'm like, well, let's back that up and edit it, but not so much here. So, okay. Well, let's just get right into this. I want to know. You know, I've told our listeners um, that we've got a, a California archaeologist coming on here, but I just want to kind of get to know you a little bit and have our listeners get to know you. So, how did you? The standard question, Michelle, that we all get: How did you get interested in archaeology? Oh, uh, that's a really good question. So, I have been told by folks that uh, have known me for a long time that I actually said when I was in high school that I wanted to be an archaeologist, although I don't recall saying that. (laughs) Uh, I've always had a love for history um, and all things of the past. Uh, I went into my undergraduate uh, career, I guess, or college uh, at UC Santa Cruz and really wanted to do something that involved kind of outdoor work. Uh, Went in uh, thinking I would major in environmental studies and biology, 
uh, and tested. Uh, my first pass uh, was uh, testing into Chem 2 or Chem 1B or Chem 2B. So I tested above the, the introductory class for chemistry, mm-hmm. um, which is a big mistake on my part um, because I got in and it was extremely difficult. And I realized if I wanted to do environmental studies and, and biology, it was going to involve all this really uh, incredible uh chemistry and organic chemistry and biology that I wasn't really sure I was up for. At the same time, I was taking anthropology, and it was just coming really easily, really enjoying it. Uh, And so I just followed that avenue right at uh, 18 years old, freshman year of college, uh, and continued to chase it. Um, That really led me down the path to to doing archaeology and eventually uh, cultural resource management. Nice. Well, I'm very interested in that because people think of archaeologists and they think of, obviously, I hate to say it, Indiana Jones, um, but they think of Indiana Jones. They think of academics in, you know, tweed jackets walking around an ivy-covered campus. But, you know, most of the archaeologists, as you well know, in this country and in lots of countries are professional contract archaeologists that have nothing to do with the academic side of archaeology. Not to say we're not academic in our own way, but, you know, it has nothing to do with academic archaeology. So, and, and, you know, my program, uh, my undergraduate program, I had much the same route. I was doing something else entirely, and I was like, I don't really want to do that anymore. But I'd filled up all my classes with anthropology classes, so I was like, let's see where that goes. <laughs> yeah. And so how did you find out about cultural resources management at well, while working at uh, or while at UC Santa Cruz or after that? You bet. So I uh, had was lucky enough to have a guest uh, professor uh, who taught a class on California archaeology. Nice. Uh, uh, my, I think it was either my junior or senior year, I can't recall. And he owned his own firm uh, called Pacific Legacy. Uh, the, mm-hmm. the, the professor was uh, Dr. Tom ja- Jackson. Mm-hmm. Um, and at that time, you see Santa Cruz was still doing narrative evaluation. <laughs> so I'm dating myself. So we didn't get grades. You, ha- you, you, you didn't get a grade. You got a nice, long narrative evaluation. And so Tom talked all about what cultural resource management was, that you could get paid to camp and hike and survey <laughs> and excavate. And I was all I was all in. In fact, a bunch of my um, colleagues that are now teaching in different colleges around here, um, a bunch of folks that were students at the time with me are all now kind of in this realm of either cultural resource management or teaching. So it's it's pretty incredible that impact that Tom had mm-hmm. on that group of students at that time. So, anyways, in the narrative evaluation, <laughs> he wrote, uh, I. I, I I tried really hard. I wrote a really strong paper. He wrote in the narrative evaluation that would I would hire Michelle St. Clair was my name at the time. Michelle mm-hmm. St. Clair as a professional archaeologist at any time. Nice. So, uh, you know, flash forward a few more years when I ha- had returned from graduate school and was looking for a job, I went back to his uh, firm in Santa Cruz and knocked on the door and held up the evaluation, <laughs> told him he said he'd give me a job. And so he was kind of <laughs> he was kind of locked in. So. <laughs> That's awesome. Pacific Legacy was actually the uh, the second company that my wife and I worked for when we first moved out to Nevada. A short project with one, and then Pack Leg had this huge, huge project, the Ruby Pipeline uh, across Nevada, and we were on that for a really long time. So it was kind yeah. of our kind of our thrust into Nevada and Great Basin archaeology, right there. So, all right, well, so you worked for 
Uh, presumably, he hired you. <laughs> you worked for Pacific Legacy for a little while. Yeah. So did you ever did you ever really do? Um, I know you went into your uh, bachelor's degree and then you got a graduate degree. Did you did you do the shovel bumming phase, the tra- traveling around, working for different companies a lot, or were you um, you know mostly with Pack Leg and then other companies? So I was mostly with Pacific Legacy, mm-hmm. double bumming, if you will, um, yeah. for the greater part of the first four or five years of my career. So from like 2001 uh, till 2005. Okay. Um, and so I traveled all over California and some some Nevada. Um, I, <laughs> I've seen every obscure little town that there is and you know, <laughs> got to, to dig, monitor, or excavate. Um, and, uh, and that, and had to balance that because there wasn't always a, a full-time workload during mm-hmm. that time. So, um, definitely was filling my plate, uh, with, uh, substitute teaching actually at, at uh, high schools and, and junior high. Um, and then also just odd jobs. I worked for a winery for a little while and I, yeah. I worked for a friend of the family trying to do business. Wasn't quite sure if this was going to be my career, um, yeah, so definitely got my chops <laughs> there, you know, <laughs> doing the field thing. Yeah, for sure. And so fast forward, uh, you are now working for Stantec. And the interesting thing about Stantec is, it, I mean, it's a massive, you know, multi-billion dollar multinational corporation. I mean, it's a huge outfit. And I was actually just talking to a friend about a completely different building and construction project here in Reno that I've got a little bit of a part with. And Stantec is one of the major players that we're dealing with to get this huge thing done. And he was like, he was like, wait, they do archaeology too. And I was like, yeah, they do all the things. <laughs> so they do everything. Yeah. It. And that's the nice thing about these huge engineering firms is they, they have everything pretty much in house and, and Stantec is no different. So what is your, uh, what is your role with Stantec? So I came on, um, almost five years ago. It'll be five years in October of this mm-hmm. year, um, to, uh, grow a cultural resource practice yeah. for them in the West. Um, and that's just what I've done. So my title, I guess, if you will, if you're into titles, um, <laughs> is cultural resource practice manager. Um, and then I have another role um, because, like you said, we're a 23,000 employee uh, architecture and engineering firm. Um, I have another role that is a uh, North American. So we're a Canadian owned company. We mm-hmm. cross, um, we have a lot of uh, teaming staff that we work with in Canada as well. So I also am a technical leader, um, helping to work with both our Canadian counterparts and, and the own staff here in the United States across the U S um, helping uh, kind of lead up technical standards for, Architectural history, archaeology, paleontology, socioeconomics. So that all folds in under um, a greater umbrella, another role I play. But I'd say the day-to-day work that I do is very much um, being the practice lead um, for our team here in the West. Okay. All right, nice. How is it? How is it working for a major corporation like that versus a smaller firm. I mean, I hesitate to almost call Pacific Legacy <laughs> a smaller firm because in the context of California archaeology firms, they are pretty good size. Um, but compared to something like Stantec, they're, you know, pretty small. So how's, how's the, what's the major differences there? You know, <laughs> God, <laughs> how long of a show do you have? Right. Um, <laughs> I, could go, I could go on forever. Um, 
there's there's a lot of differences and a lot of similarities to I think um, in terms of you know resources that are available to you in a large corporation. There are many, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and there are many uh, sectors for which you can work in. I can do a water project. I can do a transportation project. I can do a utilities project. I can work for a local developer. And those are all coming to me um, and our group uh, without uh, me really having to market externally, I guess, if you will. Mm -hmm. Someone else within the company is always doing that. So the network is wide and vast, and the variability of the type of work that we do on a day-to-day basis is uh, expansive. Um, I think that working for a smaller company, um, there are some incredible uh, opportunities for focusing, for getting really deep into projects, for feeling like a community and being close-knit. And I can say that I really try to replicate that model within the larger company. Mm -hmm. But there's also, um, I'd say, on the negative side of a large corporation is there's just a lot going on. And there's no possible way to stay on top of it all, right? Right. So um, like you were just saying, I know about a project going on in Reno. Well, I have no idea what that project is or what's going on <laughs> there. Uh, and that happens to me all the time. I'll go to some of these kind of national meetings that we have. Um, I was just uh, last year in September at um, ACRA, the American Cultural mm-hmm. Resources Association meeting. And I can't tell you how many people came up to me and said, oh, I'm doing a project with Santec in Missouri. I'm doing a project with Santec in Florida. I'm doing a project with Santec in Washington. I'm working with, you know, Joe, whoever. And I just, as much as I would love to know about all of it and keep on top of it, you can't do that when you're at a larger firm and you have to let it go. Mm -hmm. Um, The plus side of that is that you get to work with a lot of your colleagues, um, uh, outside of, of the people that work directly for you. Mm-hmm. So um, there's a lot of teaming and a lot of collaboration that happens at a larger corporation that may not happen when you're at a smaller company. You're really trying to feed yourself, right? Sure. So. Sure. All right. Uh, well, I'm going to take a brief second here, and I'll do this throughout the show. Just to remind everybody that in case you do have a question for us and you want to call in, the phone number is 775-515-4141. And you can also hit me up, Archeo Webby, A-R-C-H-E-O-W-E-B-B-Y on Twitter, or ArcPodNet on Twitter, A-R-C-H-P-O-D-N-E-T. All right, so send in those questions. And I think Tristan Boyle, the co-founder of the Archaeology uh, Podcast Network, might actually be monitoring this from Scotland as well, and he might alert me if, if something comes in. I know, great technology, right? So I know this transmitter for Carson Community Media pretty much just goes to the Carson Valley here, but it's nice that they have the live signal. So you can pretty much listen from anywhere in the world if you wanted to, which is, uh, which is a pretty nice thing. So, All right. Well, let's, uh, let's get back into this. So I, I want to I keep talking about you know, archaeology and, and Stantec and some other things because there's some stuff I learned at the Society for California Archaeology meeting, which we'll also talk about in a little bit. Uh, that we were both at last week. But I want to step back and, and get into some archaeology a little bit more. So you went to UC Santa Cruz, which is just a – I've been there a couple times, and, man, is that just a, like a beautiful campus <laughs> right up in the trees, right? Yeah. Um, yeah. yeah, so it's really nice. Um, so what are – I'm sure you learned some stuff there, and, and then when you did your graduate work, um, you, you, know, you, you focused on something. But what are some of your most – 
interesting or some of the things you love the most about California archaeology? What are some of the things you're like, man, if I could get on a project like that or just study this one thing, um, what, what, what is that for you? Oh, man. So, <laughs> um, well, I'd say, you know, what I studied uh, originally and what my my thesis is on and, mm-hmm. you know, um, that, that would be um, Spanish colonial. Uh, okay. So anything that has to do with missions or the presidios, uh, just incredible. If I could spend all my time in the Central Coast, Central Valley, you know, working at Mission San Juan Batista, Mission San Antonio, and Mission Carmel, and just research that. I'm really interested in the intersections of um, Native Americans being kind of colonized and then brought into the missions, and how did they retain their traditional culture? Also, those uh, tribes that remained on the outskirts and how they lived during that kind of historic period of Spanish and then American colonization of California. Um, gosh, yeah, that would be like the, the ticket. Do I get to do that very often? No, but, um, <laughs> you know, uh, that, that definitely is something that just really, uh, thrills me. Um, I also, I'm, I'm a stor- historical archaeologist, um, by practice. So mm-hmm. my master's degree was from a college back East called William and Mary. Yeah. I got my master's degree there. Um, so it's anthropology with the Focus on historical archaeology. Um, definitely uh, got to do some incredible things back there, but trekked it back to California. I'm from California originally, and uh, definitely wanted to stay and live and practice here. Um, so anything that brings in the historical record, uh, gold rush era, uh, you know, Victorian era, all of that is just uh, really interesting to me and something I really, really love. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I really uh, was never a historical enthusiast when I was in my undergrad. I just was like, I want to know what the really old questions are. I was really into paleoanthropology, had no interest in a site that's 200 years old, something like that. But then I came out west and I came to Nevada and I started learning about uh, started learning about historic artifacts. And it became really cool. Like, you know, you get a prehistoric site and you're like, okay, here's this one projectile point or arrowhead, as people know them uh, commonly. And it has a 3,000 you know, year date range. <laughs> you're like, oh, that's great. But then you get on this other site, this mining site from the early 1900s, and you're like, oh, this is not only from the 20s. It's like probably 1923 in the summer. You know, <laughs> maybe not that accurate. But <laughs> yeah, those I don't, I don't get as into that. But, I mean, <laughs> we uh, recently did some work um, out in Oroville, and to be able to identify what we think was the original location of where gold was being mined on the um, Feather River. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's, that's cool, right? Yeah. That's really cool. Um, so, you know, those are the kind of things that I, I definitely um, get into. I love the prehistory, though, too. Don't get me wrong. Um, <laughs> you know, in my early days, I got to do some incredible um, excavations out in the kind of Palo Alto area. Mm. And so to be able to, um, you know, work on some of these complex village sites um, that often contained, um, you know, burials and things. That's just incredible to me, too, and Mm -hmm. definitely piques my interest. I'm really also really interested, although you can probably talk better about this than I, 
and definitely people on my team understand the complexities of this much better than I. Um, I'm really interested in, in the trade patterns that happened prehistorically, mm-hmm. um, especially when we are finding, um, you know, lithic materials, projectile points, arrowheads, whatever, you know, whatever you want to call them, um, that shouldn't be in certain areas or that we only typically see in Southern California, and yet we're finding them on a project near Donner Lake, you mm-hmm. know, then you're starting to think about, well, how did this get here? What happened? How did that, was it passed along? Were the people traveling? How were they interacting? So, you know, all of those questions are um, really intriguing to me. Yeah, it's amazing when you, you read about archaeology or even read, you know, papers and write-ups and, and resources that we have that we look at, we speak with such authority and we say, well, it was this and then it was this and then it was this, but then the underlying you know, thing behind that is there's a lot of stuff that we just don't know. You know, there's a lot of, uh, I guess, uh, relationships that we don't understand yet. There's a lot of, like you said, how did this thing get here? Where did it come from? And sometimes we just play that off as, well, that's an outlier. I'll kind of worry about that later. (laughs) Let's worry about all the other stuff, you know. Uh, But that's what I love about archaeology too is, man, there's so many – so many parts of the story that we can continue to tell and uh, and and illuminate and and we'll never have it all. I mean, that's just the nature of the beast. There, we'll never have it all, but uh, it, it's it's fascinating what we can find out. Definitely. So, we were both at the Society for California Archaeology meeting last week in Sacramento. And if you're listening to this in the future on the Archaeology Podcast Network, we're speaking in mid March here of 2019. I always like to put the date in there just in case. So. The Society for California Archaeology meeting, it's, it's, it's a state meeting, but it's really more of a regional conference, and it's probably one of the bigger regional conferences in the country just because California yeah. is so huge. And then you know people from surrounding states, there's a lot of us from Nevada over there, partly because it was in Sacramento and, and close by. But uh, tell us the new role you took on with that company, <laughs> with, that, uh, uh, with that organization, sorry. Uh, and, yeah, and at the, you bet. Yeah, go ahead. So Society for California Archaeology is a nonprofit uh, group. Mm -hmm. Um, I believe our membership is probably maybe up to 1,200 or more. It's it's huge. You know, a couple years ago, I was at the Society for American Archaeology, (laughs) um, and we did uh, kind of a meeting of the different state groups. Um, At that time, it was at San Francisco, and they were just blown away at how big um, our California group is where mm-hmm. we've got to be one of the biggest. Um, so um, just proud about that, and uh, yeah. we should all be proud about our involvement. Um, but I uh, thank you very much to the community. Um, was uh, elected uh, president, and I will be uh, serving as president elect. You do three years, president elect, sitting president, and then outgoing president right. um, by my peers and colleagues. And I'm just um, very honored and um, thrilled to take it on. So I had my first board meeting uh, <laughs> Sunday uh, and got a, a, a dose of what I'm in for. So I'm just really excited to take on the new challenge. Yeah, outstanding. So it's a essentially a three-year term, which is something I didn't know of until I was talking to you about that last week. That's, uh, that's really good for uh, and a volunteer organization to have that kind of turnover so you can have that transfer of knowledge, basically. You know, you get a year to learn, then a year to practice it, and a year to pass it on, <laughs> which exactly. is really nice. Exactly. Yeah. And, and it doesn't all fall to one person either. <laughs> yeah, that's the other important thing. we got to keep all this stuff going. I mean, because putting on a conference like that, even at the state level, I mean, it's it's a big endeavor. You know, it's there's a lot of pieces to put into play. So, 
Yeah. Definitely. Definitely. And we're getting involved at a lot of different levels. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, we do do an annual conference uh, every year. It switches between Northern and Southern California. So next Mm -hmm. year it'll be uh, 2020, March 2020, it'll be in Riverside. Mm -hmm. uh, And then it'll be back up uh, in 2021 in South San Francisco. So there you go. You got a preview of the upcoming (laughs) meetings. But uh, um, beyond that, we also do uh, a Northern and Southern California data shares in October around um, archeo- California Archaeology Month, which is in October. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then we really get involved at a lot of um, different levels with different curation crises and doing curation, uh, standards of ethics, uh, you know, really setting standards for um, and policies for um how we ethically do the work that we do, tribal interaction, um, and a tribal committee student involvement. We're talking about maybe doing a young professionals, um, climate change. Um, so all of those things that we're talking about, um, you know, amongst our peers, there are uh, there are committees and groups and people that are dedicating their free time, basically, you know, it's free of charge um, to really kind of drive some of these um, kind of missions or um, policies and different things that we want to do. We're actually focused on doing legislation as well. So, Mm -hmm. um, you know, around the work that we do. Okay. Yeah. What, um, just so people can understand this, I actually didn't even actually think about this until somebody we had a booth in the uh, in the exhibit hall as well and somebody came up to us who is actually a cattle rancher uh, and it's just he's just interested in archaeology and he came to the meeting so uh, I don't think a lot of people realize this but you can just go you know I mean it's really for archaeologists to mingle and talk about their research and present on papers and stuff like that but you can just go to the conference if you want right I believe so. I think you have to register for the day, but you can sure. register as a one-day attendee. Um, I'm really, I would like to do so. My meeting is South San Francisco. Like I said, I'm elect this year, so my job <laughs> is to listen and learn this year, maybe not talk too much, which is hard for me because I like to talk. Um, but, but South San Francisco in 2021 will be my big meeting. And what we had done in the past, I've been on the board before in other positions, secretary and vice president. Um, what we had done in the past um, that was really great is we did a public archaeology day. Mm. Sometimes on Sundays, the last day of the meeting or the first day of the meeting, where this was open to uh, just you know, anybody in the public that it was, had an interest in archaeology, we did a lot of activities that were geared towards uh, kids, too, around children um, and, and their interests as well. Um, and they were always really well attended. Um, I'd really like to see that get uh, uh, kind of reinstated by the SCA, the Society for California Archaeology, um, and so that we can have that kind of dialogue um, where it's open to the public. But yes, I think I believe that the public is uh, invited to attend as well. I think you have to pay for the day um, to hear the papers and uh, hear information uh, mm-hmm. that's going on if you want to hear more of that academic side of the house and, and some of the research that's current that people are doing in California. Yeah, great. So one thing you mentioned uh, when you were talking about the stuff that the SCA uh, discusses and gets involved in is the curation crisis. It's not something I had thought to talk to you about, but I'm curious about your thoughts on this. And just for our listeners, you know, the, we, we talk about this actually quite a bit on the Archaeology Podcast Network, the curation crisis it's called. And it's essentially 
you know, we have a lot of stuff and not a lot of places to put it. I mean, that's where that really boils down to. I mean, in Nevada, it's somewhat less of an issue occasionally because there's only certain types of archaeology that we do where we actually collect artifacts, but a lot of it is survey where we don't collect artifacts. We leave it in the field. We take pictures, we document it, but we leave it where it was and we leave it in place unless it's pulled out of its primary context or, you know, from its in situ context, we call it where it was left. And that would be if we're digging it up, you know, something like that. You can't put all the dirt and artifacts back the way you found it. If we could, we probably would. (laughs) But since you can't, we take it with us because it's no longer in its primary, uh, its primary context where, where it was left and, or where it ended up, I should say. So, uh, can you tell me a little bit from just your point of view, what the creation, what the curation crisis really means, maybe how Stantec is dealing with it. I know you guys do excavations. How do you deal with this curation crisis and, and what are you seeing from the SCA? Yeah, so I think, um, you know, there's, we're definitely uh, lacking um, federal and state uh, curation facilities that meet the federal and state kind of guidelines or, or mm-hmm. requirements for curation uh, in the state of California, which makes it really difficult for us to place uh collected artifacts in a permanent uh, curation uh, facility um, for them to be preserved. Um, It really, uh, you know, there's a lot of discussion that's been ongoing for years about that. um, And I don't know that we've come to um, complete resolve on what to do. I know, for one, um, many tribes have started their own curation facilities, um, and, you know, obviously you do have to pay to curate your materials, Mm -hmm. and, um, you know, this is a a way to make money as well as preserve uh, artifacts, so it's a mutual benefit for um, all that are involved. Um, What do we do about it at Stantec? Um, One of the things we do try to do is to do as much analysis and uh, in field. Mm-hmm. So uh, whether we're doing a recovery or a survey that's requiring uh, collection, when and if it makes sense, we are doing our analyses in the field if we can. Obviously, sometimes there's uh, more detailed uh, analyses that need to be conducted um, in a laboratory setting. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, if we can, we're trying to, to uh, increase our costs to do the analysis in the field, and then to be able to discard or leave in place, right, or put, mm-hmm. put back um, where we found it. So I think that definitely um, is something that we're trying to do. Um, we obviously have agreements uh, per some of the uh, permits that we're required to have. So Bureau of Land Management requires us to have curation agreements set up to get a permit to work on um, Bureau of Land Management um land. Mm-hmm. Um, so uh, we do have some existing curation agreements. And then obviously when we're working with a client, we're having to put in uh, assumed costs for dealing uh, with curating uh, those um, artifacts. Right. We're also definitely trying not to curate things that it doesn't make sense to curate, right? <laughs> um, and that's what's hard to say because I don't know, you know, if I collect every nail from a site, maybe oh it God, doesn't nails. seem like much to me, but but, I, but who's to say, Chris, that yeah. somebody 10 or 20 years from now <laughs> isn't going to come up with some fandangled way of, uh, I don't know, uh, <laughs> tracking DNA on nails and you'll be able to figure out every person that ever hammered a nail into a, I, I don't know, right. I don't know, you know, I'm thinking that's far-fetched, but 
that that's some you know an argument that I've heard uh, previously. You know, yeah, it may not be beneficial for you to collect these things now, but maybe that information is needed in the future. Mm-hmm. I think the other thing that we're trying to do, um, and it's great to be at an engineering firm to do just this, is if we can reduce the impacts on resources that are eligible for the National Register or the California Register of Historic Places so we can avoid uh, impacting what makes those sites eligible, right? So impacting the the data that mm-hmm. would have to otherwise be collected by redesigning, so working with the engineers to redesign whatever the project is, we try to do that first and foremost. I mean, that's really yeah. our, our critical mission um, in doing cultural resource management. It's like, how can we avoid uh, this resource at all costs? Let's work with these engineers. Can this be, can it be moved over here? You know, can you build around this? So um, that's been... Um, probably the, the greatest thing that gives me kind of the greatest satisfaction in my job is being able to sec- successfully avoid the resource itself mm-hmm. through redesign or, um, you know, reworking the project somehow sure. um, so that you just uh, preserve that data for the future. Because once it's gone, it's gone. Yeah. Right. Even if you are curating it somewhere. The other thing, um, just real quick, that mm-hmm. I would say that's also come up as of recent um, that relates to kind of to the curation crisis, if you will, is that we have uh, aging archaeologists. You know, <laughs> archaeologists get old, too. They don't just study the history. Right? Yeah. Where are and they so, going to be curated? Um, yeah, exactly. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> but um, what we're finding out is that sometimes these um, archaeologists note and information mm-hmm. that maybe they didn't publish or put into, um, you know, some kind of curation or library or something. We have found out recently that um, some of them have gone to, like, public auction, you know, like, um, oh, wow. what's that show where they open up the, the oh, like, storage, wars. storage unit? <laughs> yeah, and they just sell off the stuff inside. So we're finding out that, you know, there's been a case or two mm-hmm. of that where, you know, they had, like, a public auction and, you know, somebody's, uh, you know, banker boxes of notes and details of where things are located um, got sold on the public market. And so, you know, it's really important to the SCA to be able to retain that information. One, because it's confidential, but two, because we want to have that record for the the work that we do and the studies that we do in the future. Yeah. And California kind of created their own problems for the future uh, back when they created the California Environmental Quality Act, because I know partly partly because of that, you know, there's been, I think, California more than almost any other state that I've ever heard of, and somebody can correct me if I'm wrong, but there are so many independent archaeology firms in California where it might just be one person, you know, or two people, and they're they all started in the, you know, late 70s, early 80s when everybody else did, but it's I like, for example, I know a guy who, you know, he owned his own archaeology firm. They went up to, you know, you know, dozens of people back in the 80s and then came back down in the 90s, went back up and then came back down. And for the last like 10 years, it's been just him. And then he sold his business. Well, at his house, because a lot of the work he's done, you, you mentioned having a curation agreement for work on BLM land, but there's no curation agreement if you're working on private land or or anything like that. So if you do excavate artifacts, I mean, the landowner is is the owner but uh, of the artifacts and the things that you dig up. But if they don't want that stuff, 
well, there's nowhere for it to go. And like this guy's got file cabinets and file cabinets and file cabinets of reports that he's done that have gone nowhere because they went to they didn't have an agency to go to essentially they they went to the California Information Center more likely but aside from that they didn't go anywhere else and then he's got all the artifacts all his notes everything and they're just they're not in a proper curation facility they're nowhere because there was no there was no funding for that and uh i think there's more of that than we'd all like to admit especially in California right and so that's the big question right yeah. what do you do with that if that if that person's family members um don't uh, recognize the, the the legacy of what that right. is, or don't uh, uh, recognize the value of that. Mm-hmm. Does that just go away when that, that person, go, or if that person doesn't know to preserve that or turn it over? You know, I've had a lot of that happen to me over the course of my career too, where somebody said, "I'm retiring. I don't want all these books and all these reports. Do you want them?" And I, I always say yes because um, <laughs> I like to collect things. But uh, um, you know, if that doesn't happen, then that information potentially is is lost. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there's a big table uh, for our listeners. There's a big table outside the book room at the uh, Society for California Archaeology meeting that just had basically donated books and reports and other things that are just sitting on it. And there was like a suggested donation. And, and I know they took in um, the last time I talked to Sandy, who was organizing it, there was over $500 taken in because people want these things. But I told her, I said, Sandy, are we just like exchanging these year after year? Like <laughs> people are picking them up this year and then donating them next year and picking up different things. She's like, yeah, I think there's a little bit of that going on. <laughs> well, and it's interesting as we move more into that digital age, right? Mm-hmm. Um, there's got to be a better way to keep this uh, in some kind of di- digital archive that sure. hopefully is backed up for all eternity. Right? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, but, uh, but uh, you know, there's, there's a... We can collect so much more information, and it doesn't have to take up bookshelves in your in your home. Yeah, well, that is a perfect segue into technology. Um, before we get deep into that, though, I wanted to bring up you know the reason we like to collect these things and keep them, and not just take down information. Like sometimes, like I said in Nevada, when you're doing survey. That's what we do. It's really just more of a funding and storage issue than anything. That's why we just record as much as we can. But the point is, you know, like you said about nails, we don't know what's going to come down the line. And my favorite story about this that I constantly think about when I'm recording a site, and, you know, an archaeologist's job in the field is is really just to record as much information as possible. You know, we can do, you know, the theoretical analysis later, but in the field, we need to record as much information as possible because we may be the last humans to ever see that. Uh, to see that particular item if we're leaving it in the field. And again, my favorite story about that is Chaco Canyon in New Mexico. And I learned when the first time I went there that early explorers into Chaco Canyon in the late 1800s, well, Pueblo Benita is the big, you know, the big fancy uh, structure and little town complex kind of thing that's that's right there at the uh, by the visitor center, right there in the middle of the canyon. And they saw these fire hearths and things like that and they started their own fires right there um and so they you know they're burning their own fires up the side of the walls of this thing well now there's a lot of areas within there that we can't do carbon 14 dating on because they altered the carbon 14 signature by starting their own fires and uh and we can't go in and do that but of course they didn't know anything about carbon 14 dating you know would have been another 60 80 years before that was even invented so who knows what's going to be invented in 80 years that we can do analysis on some of these artifacts that we have in storage and we preserve them properly so they're not damaged, they're not handled, they're not altered. And we can then 
apply these new analytical techniques. I mean, DNA is another good example. Look at all these evidence kits and things like that that are having DNA analysis done on them decades later before that was really affordable or really a thing. So, you know, keeping all that in mind, um, I kind of came up with a little phrase when I was writing down my questions for you. What puts the tech in Stantec, even though there's no H on the end of it. I know you guys can have that as a slogan if you want, by the way. Um, But I'm wondering, you know, what are you guys, because when I saw your booth at the the exhibit, I think there's a website or maybe you put it out on on social media. Stantec has a website about, you know, the kind of the interesting technology and things you're using in the field from subsurface investigation using drones. I'd like an explanation on that because that seems pretty cool. I read the thing, but I want to hear about it. Uh, oh, gosh, you're going to put me on the spot. <laughs> you're going to have you're gonna have to have my colleague, Butch Emmonson, yeah. come on because he's the one who really, yeah. Well, without getting into the weeds on the real tech, like what kind of things are you guys exploring? Um, you know, not necessarily using full time, but what kind of things are you exploring in order to have those more non-destructive methods or more heavier analytical methods? Yeah, so, you know, Ah, we're we're coming up to speed. I say, I, 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 you know, um, for such a large firm, I, I wish we did technology a little bit better. But as you know, Chris, we're we're moving towards that. Definitely, Indeed. I would say the tools of the trade. Um, actually, it's just funny because talking about curating and <laughs> and books and things. Um, a couple of my staff were slow this past week, and so. Um, they took it upon themselves, which is incredible, to go through my library of all these homebound reports and things mm. that I had, um, and somebody found my thesis. Um, <laughs> and so they were scanning them all in so that we could have them digitally available and organized by, um, you know, author and be able to just fill out um, references cited sure. for reports, which is all incredible things. Anyways, they found my... My my thesis, and <laughs> um, and I said, oh, look, look at how I made the map. So... I used to cut out the section of the, or photocopy the section of the topographic map mm-hmm. and, uh, you know, pinpoint and hand draw, do overlays <laughs> and vellum and things like that. That's how I learned to do the work uh, that that I uh, that I did in terms of mapping and technology. Well, you know, flash forward uh, to what we do uh, now, um, you know, it's the GIS, the geographic information systems and collecting all that in um, uh, GPS, geographical, what is it, geographic positioning system? Ge- so, yeah, yeah uh, basically. you know, being able to do that, um, uh, you know, that's definitely changed. Um, you know, when I was first coming into the field, we used compasses and mm-hmm. recorded uh, sites by hand drawing a site map, although we still do that as backup. A lot of what we do and a lot of... Um, Technicians, archaeological technicians that come to me have no uh, strong ability to be able to do this because everything's digital now. So we really are collecting either with handheld trimble, but what's even cooler now is you can do it on an iPad, right, with a booster mm-hmm. on it, and you can record um, site uh, maps using that technology. So that's um, definitely been a huge game changer um, in the work, work that we do um you know, here and and what we're implementing uh, at 
Stantec, um, nice. you know, that, that's, that's been huge. Um, I'd say, you know, where we want to be going is to be able to get more real-time feedback. So while the people are in the field taking the photos, mapping the sites, uh, you know, collecting the data, monitoring, yeah. if that could be coming back. And, it, and, the, and this is all, I mean, this is all already happening at other places. That's what we would want to be moving forward to doing uh, more of. Um, my counterpart, Butch Amundsen, I'm going to try to get you to have him call in because he, <laughs> he's hilarious too. Um, but my Canadian counterpart um, at Stantec um, is really driving um, some of the, um, what we call uh, uh, creation and innovation at Stantec. So we have some really neat things that internally we do. We fund original research so folks can apply internally within our company, our staff, mm-hmm. um, when they have original ideas. And then obviously a panel reviews that, that. I've been on the panel to review some of these original ideas previously. Um, and uh, Butch was actually one of the uh, the folks that has won uh, some uh, a grant to do this this from Stantec previously mm. called Project Greenlight. Um, and so uh, his idea was to be able to uh, use drones yeah. um, to map in Canada on the on plane sites um, uh, using kind of infrared technology and lidar and different things to be able to map sites from the air. Mm-hmm. Um, but what he was able to do was work with some of our other folks within Stantec to program uh, software and what ended up happening. So he would look at aerial maps and he would have, you know, you or me look at it and they were looking at TP rings. So it, where he is um, up in Canada, there are these round TP rings, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. Um, uh, and remember, he's on kind of a flat, open landscape. So when you're looking at an aerial map, you may be able to, from eye, right, identify, oh, that looks like a circle. That's a, probably a, a teepee ring. Nice. Well, that's probably a teepee ring. And circle that, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and then he compared that to you also, your traditional survey. So you've got a group of archaeologists walking the landscape, and then they're coming across and they say, oh, that looks like a round Beering, and they record it, right? Mm-hmm. And so he was mapping those to see how they hit. Now, he used these drones, and they were taking this additional technology, but what is so neat is the software that he programmed was able to recognize patterns in vegetation that are not avail- uh that are not apparent to the naked eye. Mm, so nice. what ended up happening was that the software, the computer started recognizing round shapes and square shapes that yeah. cannot be created. They're human created, right? Mm-hmm. And it also recognized, obviously, the ones that were either being recognized aerially or they were being recognized on the ground. Um, but the computer could see more, yeah. more than, than what was apparent from the naked eye. So he got another fund. I haven't heard the results of this yet, <laughs> but they went out to test on what the computer was identifying. So now they're going to ground truth it, Right. Yeah. Um, so that was his next round of funding, and the results of that are forthcoming. So get him on your show. He'll talk your ear off, make you laugh, and um, <laughs> he's really good. So that's another really neat technology. Um, 
I'm also talking to Butch about how can we implement that kind of technology here in California mm-hmm. as well. I don't know how well it will be able to be used in a heavy forested area or area that's not um, completely flat. But I think that there will be, um, as technology evolves, that this will be more and more readily usable. And that that would be incredible that you're teaching the program to recognize the archaeological sites. And they're actually have, it's actually having more accuracy than a human being mm-hmm. able to walk the ground or um, identify it from aerial maps. Well, yeah. Um, I mean, I've had discussions with people about this before, and I've got some, I've got some ideas of my own, and I'm, I'm half tempted to just work for Stantec so I can apply to get the funding to try these out. <laughs> but, you know, the idea is, I mean, especially with features and, you know, for the audience, features are basically anything that's typically thought of as unmovable. Um, you know, something something big like you can think of a house, but also something small like a pit or a teepee ring is basically a ring of rocks that they would support the teepee with. I remember seeing that stuff all over the Midwest when I was in North Dakota and Minnesota. And, but the problem is because of you know, the way funding and things like that work, when we do field survey, we're typically in 20 to 30 meter wide transects where that we're spaced out that far. So while we might think we see, even if we saw 100% of what we could see in our limited field of view, we're still missing a whole big segment. And I've, that's the argument I've had with people about having basically computer algorithms find things like this is that if you have drone overflights or even when we get satellites with better accuracy or at least the ones the military will let us use because you know they have good accuracy. But when we have satellites that we can use with better accuracy, then we can basically just take images and then run these computer algorithms over them and then it'll just bing, 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 bing. Here's all your features. There they are. And even if you know we miss an artifact or two here or there, we're seeing 100% of the landscape and then we just send archaeologists out to survey. Um, that really came to a head for me when I, I, with my own company, we did a 30,000 acre survey in Southern California four years ago and over 30,000 acres took us eight months to walk this thing with two crews. And I mean, we were 20, I think we were 20, 20 meter transects on this one. And about when you start calculating the area of the sites we found, it was about 1500 acres for the area of the sites that we actually found. So presumably we missed stuff because you're doing a sample and also, we walked like 28,000 acres that we didn't find anything on. <laughs> so if you could send out, you know, send out the drones or, you know, to the satellite images and then do that stuff. So I definitely want to talk to him on the podcast um, and we'll see if we can get him on the radio show. But at the very least, uh, for anybody interested in this intersection of archaeology and technology, I do have a podcast on the Archaeology Podcast Network called the Archaeotech Podcast. So check that out at uh, archpodnet.com forward slash archaeotech. Okay, well, in the last uh, 10 minutes or so of the show here, uh, I want to talk about some other stuff. So you guys collect a bunch of data. You're a huge corporation. A lot of times big companies have these sort of public interaction mandates. Um, Does Stantec, not not to put you on the spot or anything, but does Stantec do anything related to public archaeology and outreach, um, you know, to, to kind of get some of this information out there? Good question. Yeah. Yeah. So... Um, my projects thus far, since my four and a half years uh-huh. um, here at Stantec, have not completely involved. Actually, now you got me thinking a little bit. Have not completely <laughs> involved public outreach, but actually they have because now I just thought of something. But I was just going to plug um, my uh, colleague out of Laurel, Laurel Maryland, mm-hmm. Paul Cressa. 
um, who actually is moving to Wisconsin, um, mm. but uh, it was in Laurel, Maryland for a long time. Has done a lot of work uh, in the Washington, D.C. area uh, with the National Park Service and has done an incredible amount of kind of public outreach and interaction. However, in kind of talking through that and stalling and trying to think of something himself, <laughs> he did uh, involve the public pretty heavily last summer in a recovery project that we did out at Donner Lake. Um, and so we teamed up with state parks um, uh, to get volunteers to come out to help uh, screen um, through um, some of these dredged materials that contained uh, archaeological uh, artifacts, mm-hmm. contained artifacts, lithic materials. Um, and that was uh, kind of a call out to the public, and uh, we got quite a few volunteers that helped us get through a pretty uh, massive amount of dredging uh, materials uh, along with the tribe. I'd say um, in terms of getting information out there and coordinating information, for the most part, uh, the work that I have directly been involved with has been um, interacting and exchanging information with tribes mm-hmm. um, and has not really uh, carried over to the public yet. There are several projects that we're working on right now that do have a public interpretation component to them. We just haven't gotten to that part yet. So talk to me again in a year or two, and I probably can <laughs> give you more examples. Nice, nice. All right, well, let's let's move forward into the future a little bit and, and do some thinking on this. Um, what's, what's something that you'd like to see changed about archaeology in the future, whether it's a technology standpoint or something to do with curation or maybe even our field practices, what's what's one of the things that you can think of that you'd like to change? Well, we talk about this a lot on some of my podcasts and, you know, like, hey, if we had a blank check and, and unlimited research, where how would we like to actually do our job or how would we like to have this public outreach component? I mean, there's virtual reality and augmented reality. One of your the booths next to you had a had a virtual reality thing for this rock art project that they did, which is pretty t- cool. We're doing that too. <laughs> nice, nice. <laughs> that was my other thing. I was going to tell you. Yeah, we're doing a lot of three D mapping. Our, our our architectural history group. Yeah, is definitely doing that three D mapping in virtual reality. Working with our landscape design mm-hmm. team. Um, so that that's happening. So that's super cool because you could do things like the National Park Service or state parks. Um, you know, say you've got a building that is not access, ADA accessible, and it would be really difficult to be able to get uh, it ADA access, accessible, but you mm-hmm. want to be able to create that experience for people, you may be able to do that by a virtual reality tour, right? For yeah. individuals that may not be able to ex- access it, and then it can be um, open to anybody in the world, right? Um, so... I will actually say if I if I could write a golden ticket right, and, <laughs> and, and get whatever I wanted, mm-hmm. um, I want a more fair and equitable practice um, for uh, this work that we do. Yeah. Um, I feel like a lot of other sciences get um, a lot of recognition, a lot of money thrown at them. 
Um, but this social science that we do, this archaeology, um, you know, it's sink or swim, and it's really incredibly hard for the shovel bumps of the world to maintain this lifestyle and maintain the work we do. And yet, the field work that we do is what the Indiana Jones is so much, so incredibly attractive to the public, mm-hmm. um, so incredibly attractive to all of us when we first get into it. I think, like I said, I got into this because I wanted to work outdoors, right? right? I wanted to be paid to hike. Um, however, to sustain that lifestyle and do that element of the work is incredibly difficult to make a living, especially as you get older and you think about retirement or you think about medical need coverage, medical insurance coverage, or you have children. Um, it's incredibly hard to maintain this lifestyle, but yet do the work that is essential to what we do. So for me... Um, what I would want to be able to fund and do here, um, I'm, I'm really all about unionizing um, yeah. archaeological technicians, uh, making fair and equitable pay for um, various shovel bums across the U.S. so that they end standards for you know work conditions, work days, how they are housed, how they are uh, compensated for food, those kind of things, and safety too. You know. Uh, not putting them in unsafe situations that could potentially be harmful for mm-hmm. them and having allowing them to get access to health insurance and those kind of things as well because this is hazardous work that we do. We work yeah. on really heavy equipment um, and we strain our bodies quite a bit um, in the in the field work that we do. So for me, that's a huge push. Um, also tied up in that, I know that there are you know federal standards for um, what qualifies you to be able to be a principal investigator. Mm -hmm. But I'd like to see that across the board so that there are more standardization um, of uh, who can do the work that we do. And I'd love to see that at the state level in California as well. Yeah. Are any of those talks happening in the, or can you speak about it? (laughs) That's happening in the background at the SCA. Oh, you bet. And that's the standards and ethics uh, committee that we have, as well as the overall board. We're definitely always talking about that, talking about how we can guide um, planners and developers and those uh, kinds of folks to do this work. Um, Yeah, you bet. We're definitely talking about it. Have we solved these problems? Definitely not. And I think it'll be an ongoing dialogue for a long time. Um, another plug for my 2021 meeting, I think this is definitely <laughs> going to be part of the theme that we're going to talk about is a balanced perspective and a balanced way that we approach that we work that we do so that it's fair and equitable for everyone that's involved in it. Okay. All right. Well, uh, I want to ask you definitely one more question, uh, maybe a couple, but it, it's kind of my uh, people always say, what would you do if you win the lottery? And I think a lot of archaeologists would just continue doing archaeology. We'd just be able to get you know, paid for it and not have to worry about that paycheck or those responsibilities of, of other things that we have to do to keep doing this work. And I'm wondering, if you won the lottery, you, you spent the money on houses and cars and you got all the things, um, where, where, what, where would you like to work in the world? What site would you like to, to do some research on or something like that anywhere on the planet? Uh, what would you do? Oh my God. <laughs> wow. That's incredible. Um, oh, Chris, that's a hard question. <laughs> it really um, is. <laughs> yeah. Um, I, I honestly, I love the, the missions of the Presidios. That, that would, that's where my, I'm yeah. first going. Um, however, uh, my, uh, honeymoon, my husband and I went to Turkey and oh my goodness, that was incredibly impressive. So 
Yeah, if I could do some uh, research in Turkey. Um, I also got uh, the privilege to be able to go to Xi'an, China, um, and and go to see the Terracotta Warriors. And nice. oh my goodness, I was just um, blown away. I guess I'd say the Terracotta Warriors, actually, now that I'm thinking about it more, because I asked a lot of questions of the archaeologists there, mm-hmm. through an interpreter, of course, mm-hmm. Um when I was there, and I really wanted to know more about the day-to-day life of the people that helped build these uh, terracotta warriors for the emperor at the time, um, and what happened to all of them, mm-hmm. because a lot of them were killed to maintain their silence about where the location of them were by the emperor. Yeah. He into- uh, actually, like, entombed all of his wives <laughs> when he um, died so that they couldn't disclose. It was very, like, top secret. Um, but the, the archaeologists that were doing the visit were interested really in the... They were in- interested in you know, the the warriors themselves and mm-hmm. everything that was tied up with the emperor. I wanted to know more about the people that helped make that become what it was. Um, so I would love to be funded to do that kind of research. That would just be incredible. Awesome. Well, we are going to wrap up right now with that. Um, Michelle, what's the uh, address for Stantec on the internet? Oh, it's easy. www.stantec, which is spelled S-T-A-N-T-E-C.com. All right. Well, thank you. And how about the Society for California Archaeology? I hate with that one, too. Oh, you're going to get me on that one. <laughs> I, I want to say it's just uh, sca.com, but I would say... I think it's .org. Google, yeah. Go yeah. ahead and Google uh, <laughs> Society for California Archaeology, and it'll come right up. For so, sounds good. Sounds good. All right. Well, again, thanks a lot, Michelle, and thanks a lot for coming on the show and talking to us about your experiences as an archaeologist and a little bit of California archaeology. Thank you very much. Thank you. All right. So this has been the Archaeology Show with Chris Webster on KNVC 95.1 FM, Carson Community Media in Carson City, Nevada. If you're interested in hearing a replay of this show, I always put them on the Archaeology Show, which is the name of the podcast on the Archaeology Podcast Network. This will be out on April 20th on arcpodnet.com forward slash archaeology forward slash 62. Thanks for the show. Thanks for listening. And we'll see you next week. This show is produced and recorded by the Archaeology Podcast Network, Chris Webster and Tristan Boyle in Reno, Nevada at the Reno Collective. This has been a presentation of the Archaeology Podcast Network. Visit us on the web for show notes and other podcasts at www.archpodnet.com. Contact us at chris at archaeologypodcastnetwork.com. Thanks again for listening to this episode and for supporting the Archaeology Podcast Network. If you want these shows to keep going, consider becoming a member for just $7.99 US a month. That's cheaper than a venti quad eggnog latte. Go to archpodnet.com slash members for more info.